Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. Today's podcast is going to be pretty heavy. A lot of, I don't know how graphic it's going to get because I can't see the future. But today I have Chris Davis. Uh, he's the cinematographer, director, and producer, I believe. Producer and director. Assistant producer. Assistant producer of Stolen Innocence, a film that's taken the last seven years of his life approximately. And it's about the human sex trafficking uh arena i don't know what word to use human sex trafficking business really and uh it's the fastest growing criminal endeavor and uh and it's because it's so profitable and so easy to get away with sadly in many countries and you may think well i've heard about this and this is happening in you know asia or in you know india's part of asia but in india or nepal or you know any any other part of asia or some of these small villages or small small countries but actually, the statistics that Krish shared with me today is that uh, here in Utah, where we're recording this live, is uh, 10,000 people are trafficked every year in the state of Utah. I'm going to repeat that because it just sounds too unbelievable. If there's such a big crisis, how the heck are we not hearing that 10,000 human beings are being trafficked either for sex trafficking or forced labor here in the state of Utah? So uh, I want to introduce Chris Davis and ask him a little bit about what it is that he does, and maybe he could start off with something really uplifting and positive about someone he was able to free, because that's ultimately the purpose of this podcast is, one, to bring awareness, and then show that we could actually do something about it. Because I know in the climate issues, you know, it's like, hey, the world is burning. Right as we record this, Mendocino and uh, a lot of places in the Bay Area are burning. I had a three o'clock appointment with somebody in California, all of their powers out, so I had to cancel. So the world's burning the fastest growing business in the world, uh, in the criminal arena is uh, sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, sex slavery, child, uh, child sex slavery, and just human slavery. And uh, Chris, if you could share with us uh, maybe who you are, what you've done, and uh, maybe one really awesome story before we go into maybe the darker realms of this. Sure, fantastic. Uh, yeah. So yeah, my name's Chris Davis. I've been a film a film director for quite a few years, and a few years back, I decided that I only wanted to work on projects that actually made a difference in the world. And um, spent a lot of time working in Central America, where I saw a, saw a lot of human trafficking happen uh, firsthand. And um, I met my uh, partner in this film, uh, Casey Allred. Um, he was running a nonprofit in India. He started up schools in India. And what ended up happening there is a lot of his girls started to go missing. And mm. um, he actually hired me for a project for his school, uh, for his nonprofit, and we started talking and we decided to make this happen. And uh, we basically started a Kickstarter campaign. Um, we were able to raise about $100,000. And of course we put probably three times that much ourselves into the film. and was going to start maybe about a year hmm. um, filming, and it turned into a five-year project, um, mostly because it's really difficult to get inside these type of arenas, inside the sex trade, because it's uh, very closed off, ran by the mafia, um, pretty dark stuff. Yeah, it's dangerous, you know, yeah. especially being two people that are, you know, at least one of you is outsiders completely. And you probably stand out like a sore thumb walking through India and Nepal. I spent seven months in India, and my partner Madeline spent three years there. So working with, she worked with nonprofit NGOs out there helping people with uh, cerebral palsy and you know autism and other things. So yeah, working also with people that are really struggling out in these countries. Right, correct. And it takes a lot of trust to be able to get inside <clears throat> these communities. We you know we actually had to live in the brothels themselves and. Oftentimes, I had quite a few bad experiences in, in that situation. So it took us a lot longer than we were thinking about. And um, yeah, the the time I spent there, ended up, I knew it was going to be difficult, but it ended up becoming a lot more difficult. Um, and dur yeah, during the time we were making the film, we did a brown, 80, we assisted in about 80, 89, 80, 
yeah, about 89 rescues. Um, and that's what really brought hope to me in this situation is that there is hope. There's a lot of things that we can do around both the prevention and um, rescue and rehabilitation around human trafficking. What's coming to mind to me right now is when you said there's you had 89 rescues in the time you were out there, is it, I would imagine that a lot like that movie, The Schindler's List, where uh, at the end, Oscar Schindler, at the, movie, at the end of the movie, he goes, you know, he's looking at his ring and he's like, well, this was two more people and I could have saved even more people than I did. And I could only imagine that when you see the liberating experience of being able to free uh, these women, that it's hard to spend any moment of your life not trying to help free more of them. And it's got to be this, I don't know, this deep yearning, but also this deep pain to know that like there's so many cries and tears and screams happening all over the world that are just silenced uh, because nobody wants to talk about this and nobody wants to look at it because it's dark. I want to maybe point to one of the rescues, if you want to tell a rescue story that's uh, about one of the girls that was maybe one of the most memorable for you to start this podcast off so that we could instill some hope of that experience and like really ground that in the body and keep people listening to the rest of it as we get into the more, the, the darker details of this, which right. has been intense, as you've shared with me, you know, I just got really silent. So uh, we'll try to dance this podcast forward to the best of our ability and see uh, what what the spirit of the times wants to talk about. Right. Um, it's, you know, it's hard. Um, you know, even, even after the film, um, we've done probably about 120 more rescues um, with the Human Rescue Project. It's really hard to pull out one story that um, was memorable, but um, we had a particular girl that we were looking for for over six months, and her family really, really wanted her back home. Mm. And we did probably... Probably around twelve attempts of different rescues, and then some of those rescues we actually rescued other girls. Trying to find her, trying to it's find like her. saving Private Ryan, trying to save Private Ryan, you end up saving other people. Yeah, correct. Mm. But um, finally, um, we were just—it was literally we just kind of given up hope on it, but we kept on trying and trying, and we finally found her, and uh, she went back to her home, and um, she had a baby. Because uh, she was uh, on during this process. During the process, yeah, she was actually pregnant when we found her. Mm. She's back home, and um, it was actually a, a, a positive situation because in a lot of uh, areas in India, it's really hard for the girls who are trafficked to actually go back to their home and their villages. But uh, she was actually able to go back home in her village and her family and um, integrate back into life, and she's doing some amazing things. Um, Where was this at? What country? This was in India. India. What part of India? Was in uh, West Bengal. Oh, West Bengal. Which is where a big majority of the trafficking happens. Um, I could state another story, just a really quick one, because I think this one's absolutely beautiful. These two girls who actually escaped from trafficking, we didn't rescue them. Wow. But um, they're actually inside our film. And uh, one of the girls is currently, um, she started up her own business and is about ready to uh, take on Everest. Hmm. That was her dream. So there's some women doing some really fantastic and amazing things. And she also works with human trafficking survivors. What's her name? Um, I am not at liberty to say. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm. Sounds good. Mm. So um, I think... People are probably wondering, I'm trying to imagine where I was at with this, wondering how this happens. I mean, do people show up in the middle of the night and take these girls? Or is it typically, you know, somebody walking to the bus station and, you know, they become abducted? Or how does this happen? Because I think I was personally very surprised with kind of the strategy that the traffickers use in order to essentially very easily like it's like pulling easy fruit off of the bottom branches of a tree and it happens over and over again. So maybe how is it that most of these girls or what are the ways that these girls are being abducted and what's the most common? Right. Well, I'm going to speak specifically about India and Nepal at the first because that's where I have the most experience around. The most average way is that um, it's usually somebody well-known in the village, um, usually a woman, um, actually the majority of traffickers are women. There's more 
women traffickers than male traffickers. Are people surprised when you say that there's more female uh, uh, sex traffickers than male? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I was totally floored by that. I picture I had a total image in my head, you know, of this like group of, you know, psychopathic gang of men, you know, snorting cocaine and trafficking women, you know, in the back of you know crazy contraptions. I did not picture women doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, they're pretty well-known people inside the community and um, they've been doing this for a while. So they'll offer the girls a job. We're talking about villages where the average monthly income is $30 a month. Hmm. So they'll offer these girls a job, either working inside as a dishwasher or a maid somewhere in a faraway town. Oftentimes in Nepal, they'll talk about taking them to India. If it's Indian, it's West Bengal, they'll talk about bringing them up to Mumbai. Hmm. And These are the major hubs of like Western commerce and quote unquote the developing the developed cities within quote unquote un- underdeveloped or undeveloped countries. It's an econ- it sounds like an economic pull where people are not able to sustain their lives because they have they've moved over to this money system and can't be able to support themselves. So they're sending their daughters away to work in order to be able to earn enough money to help support the family. Correct. Yeah. Well, um, but like a regular job, like an opportunity is how it's presented, right? Yeah, like an opportunity. And so between survivalism and the fact that, um, you know, one of one of the reasons why it's really difficult for um, female bodies in India is because um, they're not very highly valued. They actually cost families money versus actually make them money. So, when so how does a female cost families money when a, when a male doesn't cost a family money or actually makes a family money? Because that... That doesn't make sense to me. Like, they're not born in the world. Like, men aren't born into the world with a wallet. And then women, like, oh, in India, well, they normally have purses, but somehow on this side of the border, they don't come with purses. What, what is it? Because this is a cultural, this is an economic cultural issue. Correct. And I've heard about this, but I want you to touch on it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, male bodies make more money as far as the workforce goes, mm-hmm. as well as uh, female bodies uh, you end up having to pay dowries. So mm-hmm. actually getting them married and, and ha- putting them in the family actually costs you money versus you know receiving money back from them. So, And I know in some, some places in India, I remember listening to uh, or reading or listening to the audio book by Lynn Twist, The Soul of Money. And she talks about how in India there was this village that she went to and the women there were suffering from great levels of grief. I think it was Lynn Twist that was talking about this. And the reason why is that when they would have a female daughter, they would oftentimes kill the daughter. And this was practice. I mean, people knew this was happening. And the reason why is because of the dowry system. And they knew that, like, essentially by having a girl, they had, like, lost the lottery. It's like a reverse lottery. And uh, all of the grief that these women experienced when they were actually able to feel the fact that they had done this and why and what was going on. Um, and these are the women that are that have these these are the families that have these women that don't end up, you know, practicing what's called infanticide, which is killing the babies. Um, and the women grow up, they probably have the best hopes that they're not going to have to send their daughter away. But they look at this as really grateful that they're able to find this opportunity for their daughter in this big city. So when what, what happens when the girls go to this big city? Well, oftentimes uh, they will be trafficked inside the area. So let the most common areas, let's say we start in Nepal. Mm-hmm. We'll just put forth a, an average situation. They start in Nepal. They get trafficked across the border. They usually get drugged, so they don't really know or understand where they're going. Um, and they'll end up in a, a large city like Mumbai or Delhi. But wait a second. Don't they have to pass over the border between Nepal and India? What about the police or border patrol? That's actually quite a big issue because, um, well, Nepal and India actually has an open border. So Nepalese and, and Indians are able to go back and forth between these two countries without no issue. However, it should look suspicious if you're carrying, you know, like a, a, a you know, a drugged out girl or six of them, right? Yeah. Somebody would see you. Correct. Yeah. And they often do. The police do see these girls often almost every time right well the problem is is that uh indian police make such a little amount of money that um it's incredibly easy to bribe them and sometimes as little as a fish it's just like here you go here's lunch let me go by 
And now these now these girls are trafficked over for the cost of a of a fish. Correct. So again, an economic issue here where the police are desperate because a lot of times people wonder why the U.S. When, I mean, when I went to India, I noticed, and when I went to Mexico, uh, what I noticed was uh, you could bribe the police, or essentially not even you could bribe them. You kind of had to. Like they would put you in positions, or like, oh, you don't have an Indian license, you know, and they would establish that by looking at me. And then I would have to pay them or stand there all day, which eventually they let you off, you know, if you just stood there forever. But they'll, you know, do their best to make it very inconvenient to where it's worth to pay them for it. And here in the United States, police are paid so much that they're able to, and they're paid a lot. I mean, and they're also given a really, really good pension. So that's why it's so hard to bribe police in the United States. I mean, you can bribe them probably, but it takes a lot of money to be able to bribe them. And generally, it's probably bribing somebody way higher up. So now they're in, you've taken them from Nepal to India. Now what happens? So, yeah, they'll generally end up inside a large city in a brothel. Um, Do people know where these brothels are? Or are they like really hidden? You have to go on Craigslist or something. No, the brothels in India, a lot of them are actually size of full cities. Like you talk about Sonagachi or Kamatipura. Um, How many people are in, this, in these brothel cities? Around 100,000. 100,000 people most uh, how what percentage of these i mean i know you probably don't know the exact percentage nobody's keeping track of these things but what percentage of these people do you think if you had to harbor a guess a range of how many of them ended up there due to some form of trafficking as opposed to like i want to go work in this brothel in this city at some point um every probably a good majority of the people who live there have something to do with human trafficking hmm. whether they're trafficked themselves or they're working in the industry but that's strange to me. Why would there be a brothel in a big city when you're dealing with a culture that uh, doesn't really, like, they're not particularly sexual? No sex till marriage, no pornography. I think pornography is illegal, isn't it? It, um, it might have switched. It has been for quite some time, yeah. Is homosexuality illegal there? It just barely was made uh, decriminalized, I guess mm. you should say, but it's still very highly looked down upon and oftentimes people can be killed just because they come out homo as a homosexual yeah hmm. and, but it's fascinating too because in india the culture you could be uh holding hand with holding hands with a man and that's totally normal but if you're holding hands with a woman you know that it, it's shocking that was one of the first things that i noticed that was very you know culture shock for me was that men were holding hands but men and women could not do that so uh things are very different there so now, now you're in this big city, um, hundred thousand other sex, you know, either sex slaves or victimized by this industry in some way. Now, what happens to this girl? They've arrived. They're drugged. They. So they're generally uh, sold off to a madam, or you know, the person who runs the brothel. Oftentimes, it's women. Sometimes, it's men. Is there a name for the person? Is it trafficker? Is that what the name of the person that takes them over? Yeah, generally there's there there can be up to two traffickers. There can be a trafficker in Nepal that brings them to another trafficker that mm -hmm. then again sells them to a brothel. So there's never a job. The job's an illusion. The job's an illusion. Hmm. Correct. So now the drugged girl is in this city. We'll name one of the cities. What are the yes, cities? Let's say Mumbai. Mumbai. Now yeah. the girl's in this big, uh, you know, um, what are they called out there in Mumbai? They're called districts or what is it called? Sectors. Mm -hmm. So they're in this big sector of 100,000 others. Um, what happens now? Well, generally, uh, oftentimes, most of the times, the girls just won't automatically say, okay, we're, we're, we're going to become prostitutes for you. We're going to do sex work for you. Because um, that's like one of the, that's like lower than the lowest class is being a sex worker, probably even below being an untouchable in that system. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess it depends. There's also some religious background around prostitution and sex work, but that's a whole other subject to get into. That's not the sex trafficked girls, though. Yeah. Correct. But their their opinion of being a prostitute is probably as low as it could possibly be, worse than cleaning toilets. So they're not apt to want to participate in this situation that they've been put in against their will. Correct. Yeah. So. Um... They'll use all sorts of um, techniques to try to talk these girls into becoming prostitutes. And um, I'll, I'll name a few of them. Yeah. So they'll starve the girls for a very long time, won't give them food. They'll cut the girls, they'll put them in cages. Um, oftentimes a very 
common technique is actually burning their nipples and um yeah um even with cigarettes or pressure cookers so they'll they'll burn them and oftentimes even are although threaten their families as well say that they'll kill their families or hurt their families and uh this is this one's actually really difficult to talk about because when they're breaking down the girls it's it's not actually very different than breaking a horse Mm. it's um just breaking their will little by little and if a if a girl still does not want to become a prostitute which happens quite often a lot like they just won't break their spirit's too strong yeah and they've thought up something for that too Mm -hmm. yeah they'll um they'll tie the girl to a bed and they'll bring in about 10 men and within a period of 24 hours, they'll just repeatedly rape her one by one over and over and over again. And once that happens, there's not much left there at that moment. There's not much wheel left. It's just, um, I mean, I can't, could not even imagine that. Hmm. Hmm. <sighs> I've heard that before. The first time was shocking, and this time was almost equally as shocking. Um, I'd imagine that after a while, people being surrounded by this over and over and over again, it just becomes, people become numb. Like their own spirits become broken. I think that what I want to touch on right now, because I think that might what might be going through people's head is like, who in the fuck are these women that are trafficking these girls over? How are they so inconsiderate and so incompassionate? I even feel it right now. I'm like, you know, even though I know how they got there, how did these women end up as traffickers? Who were they? Yeah, it's it's a cycle because, you know, even a lot of the traffickers or the madams in the brothels oftentimes have been trafficked themselves and have been numbed. And um, oftentimes they'll they'll control the women and girls through drugs. And it's just a continual cycle of... So the traffickers are themselves sex-trafficked slaves at one point that now it's like the gladiator in the arena that somehow survives the arena with some sense of independence and then goes out and becomes, you know, what's coming to mind is in the movie The Gladiator um, where Proximo, we find out at the end that Proximo was once a slave in, in the gladiator arena and then became the owner of a gladiator arena where he's slaughtering off other people that are in his exact situation. And this is the perpetuation that I think happens. I mean, this is the perpetual cycle where the victim, there's two victims. And then, I mean, there's really all victims. If you, if you look at it deep enough, it doesn't excuse what's happening. And I think this is the hard part to be with because it's really uncomfortable. We're so used to going, who's the bad guy and how do we get him? You know, we're talking today the day after, you know, Trump allegedly with his, you know, military killed some leader of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. I can't remember which one. Um, And it's like, okay, we've got the bad guy. But the challenge is, is that somebody will just come right in that place. Like if we get rid of the madame, then the new madame comes because underlying there's almost a spirit that takes over people and it perpetuates this cycle. And I'm not quite sure how to break it. Well, if you're, let's say I'm in a situation where I'm trafficked Mm -hmm. and um, most likely I end up with HIV because that's usually what ends up happening with trafficked girls because they don't really use condoms that often. So it's a death sentence. A death sentence, yeah, or a very, very sick sentence, yeah. Um, and then after that, let's say even if I get rescued. So mm-hmm. this actually happens to some girls that we actually rescue. They actually go back into the trade after they're rescued because they're not allowed to go. One is that their spirit's broken. They're usually yeah. just depressed, um, overcoming drug abuse, and um, they can't go back to their village because they'll actually be shunned and pushed away from their village. Um, oftentimes their families can't even look at them or see them. Mm. And they Deep have shame. Deep, deep shame. Deep shame. No, uh, no vocational experience besides being a prostitute. Mm. Um, and nowhere to go. 
So really the only option is to continue working in the same system to for survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it any better when they go back on their own accord than when they were put in servitude? Well, I'm sure, you know, the average cust- the a girl takes about 34 to 36 customers on average in India per day. Mm. So that's essentially being raped, you know, 36 times a day. So I guess being a madam is better than being raped 36 times a day, yeah. Yeah, no, I was talking about when they go back. You're saying they go back and become a madam. Oh, yeah, some of them, a lot of them do be- go back and become madams or Because that's themselves. the one business that they know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I want to sit with that for a second. I think what you're doing rescuing this, these women, I feel that that's really beautiful. And it's got to feel sad knowing that no matter how fast you're rescuing them right now, the industry is growing. And it's like the Titanic taking on water. And you've got really talented people pouring buckets out of the ship but the water is coming on faster than you're taking the buckets out, right? Right. And it's discouraging because, you know, systemically it's growing and it's very few people you're able to free. However, you can't not free them because you know what, what it's like for them based on what they've shared with you. I remember being in India and one of the first days I, that – a girl came up to the window and started pounding on the window of the car and her whole face was mangled. Her eye was ja- like jabbed out and like white. She must've been four years old. Uh, somebody had likely mutilated her in order for her to be able to be a more economically effective beggar. And this system, it's like a f- another form of slavery other than sex slavery. And maybe there's some sex element to that too. Um, I mean, Probably not like on a grand scale because that person has been mutilated and probably doesn't, wouldn't bring in money. But if that person would, it wouldn't put it past the person that's in that position. And I remember trying to give food to her and the person I was with like wouldn't let me do it. And they're like, no, no, no. If you give this person food, it perpetuates it, you know? And at the same time, like my heart wants me to give something. And the person is that puts these children in these situations knows that. So we're faced with this conundrum of I want to give, I want to help, but yet there's so much need. And then I'm afraid to help because if I help, am I perpetuating the same cycle? And, uh, and I think that what I really wanted to do was somehow free that girl, but I had no idea how to do that. And I, but at the same time, she needed money and was, like, was, looked starving. So like, I wanted to give her food because that's the one thing I could do. And maybe that what these things point to a sign of is that people are not working together. The society in general is sick. The human, the human species is sick because individually, yeah, we can't rescue that girl. Like, what do I do with the girl now? Like here, come with me. You know, she's like, well, who the heck are you? What are you going to do to me? You know, look at what these other people did to me. You know, I don't know who you are, you know? And like, what would I do anyway? Like, I remember feeling this real powerless feeling. Like I grew up in the projects or the hood or whatever, you know? And like, you know, if, Somebody was getting bullied or picked on, you know, oftentimes it was me, but I had friends that would help me from something getting really, really, really bad. And these people just seem like completely lost souls, you know, and uh, I think they're begging for more than just money. But I don't know if I think maybe as awareness grows, I hope that some ideas come together and that heart tugging pulls people's hearts together in a way that could help these people. That just came up so vividly for me, and I know that may not. I might have pulled on a tangent, but I just couldn't, I, I could see the girl right in front of me and you could hear the pounding on the window. And I remember that helpless feeling of not being able to do anything and then seeing so many more after her. Yeah. Well, I absolutely love doing rescues. I'll probably do it for the, my entire life. I cannot stop doing it. I just, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, but I actually think the more important issue right now is awareness and education around human trafficking. That's why this film was made. Mm. Because as we're talking, these statistics are are astounding for you, right? And it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, like I like still I'm talking to you. I know you've spent five years making this film, and uh, I still like doubt it because it's just it's so big and yet 
we don't hear about it. You know, instead we're hearing about the local reality star or, you know, something Trump did or said or, you know, some something like that. You know, when and the bigger issues are getting there's distractions blocking us from looking at bigger issues that are we can't really do like we're attacking each other on Facebook about you know one opinion versus another when the really the reality what would bring us together is looking at these bigger issues and saying like what can I do to help what can I do to help you know um I mean there could be an army of people freeing sex workers you know get your visa and figure out some way if you have money money is like the thing that's really needed if you have money like that's something beautiful you could do. You don't even like, like the money is stored. You're a steward of this money. That is that is the gift you've been given by your creator or God or the universe, whatever you want to call it. And you could convert this into people who don't have money that want and feel really passionate about going down there, people like you and probably armies of people all around the world that would love to come free them and also look at what it is that we could do to systemically solve this issue. I mean, I think this is deeply rooted into our economic system, which I don't want to hijack this podcast. If you want to hear more about that, listen to my podcast with Charles Eisenstein on the history of debt. But uh, I think it's deeper than that. But at the same time, I think that the solution comes from what can we do? And that's something we really struggle with doing something about. But we could go down there and, and really free these girls. And that's the difference between that and giving money to the girl at the at the window, which probably should give money to the girl at the window too, or food, so she doesn't get beaten even worse, you know? Right. Well, I mean, everybody should be know. Everybody should be in the know of these statistics. Like this should be. We're talking about. Give us some statistics. I see you have them right here. (laughs) I mean, we have. This is the fastest criminal organization, fastest criminal activity in the world. Fastest growing. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's just going out of hand, and it's raising by anywhere from six to twelve percent a year in in growth. We're talking about larger faster growing than drugs faster growing than arms this is something that we should we should know about so um why do you think it's not more known like why do i mean i don't sex trafficking doesn't even come up in conversations you know it's mostly what's coming up in in the current zeitgeist for me is uh trans rights like whether climate change is real or not whether carbon footprint matters at all uh uh, these are the polarizing debates right now. Like that's the two main ones. And sex trafficking is something I'm not, and it, I mean, I'm sure it's difficult to be transgendered anywhere where you don't have equal rights, but there's 10,000 uh, slaves going into, and I'm not saying that to belittle or say, or make light of trans rights. It's just, I don't hear about these at all. And it, why do you think that is? I think it's really difficult for people to, in my experience, a lot of people will talk about, yes, okay, tell me about human trafficking. And then once I start to get into the details or say, watch the film or watch the documentary, it's really, really uncomfortable for a lot of people to hear. And so, um, I mean, there's so much money behind it. There's $150 billion. It's a $150 billion a year industry. That's like mm, larger than my... $150 billion. Yeah, it's larger than most corporations of the large corporations yeah. out there. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think it's just really uncomfortable for people to hear about this and talk about it and watch it. And, um, you know, some people prefer to kind of move towards the positive things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, we really can't hit those positive There's places. There's a term for that, I think, called spiritual bypassing, it's been called. Right. Where people want to focus on, you know, if they shame the person that speaks out about something negative. And I'm often in this position, you know, I'll, I'll say something and they're like, you know, you compared sex trafficking with, with debt, you know, and, you know, shame on you. How could you even compare the two? And I'm like, look, like I have to use the English language and I'm trying to create metaphors because we don't have anything to compare with sex trafficking. Like what is the cause of it? You know, or, uh, something, somebody might say, I'm saying making light of the trans situation. I'm like, no, I think that's a situation. That's also an issue, you know, and, why is this also, it's like, I think a lot of people are afraid to speak about something that's not in the actual mainstream because somehow it makes whatever's in the mainstream seem less valuable. Like as if we can't make multiple changes at the same time, you know, it's like, 
And I hear this oftentimes with like lifestyle changes. Oh, you just got to make one lifestyle change at a time. It doesn't ever work that way for me. You know, if I'm starting to eat healthier, I naturally move more and I naturally sleep better hours and I'm naturally having better relations. It's like they're all connected. It's not this isolated thing, you know, and uh, what what's also I'm imagining myself listening to this podcast, not having seen the film, which I have seen the film, uh, not having if I hadn't seen the film and I hadn't talked to you before, I'm trying to imagine what would be coming up for the listener. And I would think that one of the questions they would have is, if there are so many sex, sex slaves running around, how do the people in India and Nepal explain how they, how they could live in a world where this exists and it's prevalent and it's happening all around them? And I often say, when, whenever there's something like that, there's often a mythology that's been built or used. Maybe the mythology hasn't been built for that reason, but the mythology then becomes used to justify what's already happening to keep it. And it perpetuates it. It becomes part of the story. This is the story we live in. This is what happens. And I know in India, one of these things is karma. Like clearly this person's a sex slave because that's their karma. And therefore it's like this circular reasoning that of course that's what they deserve because that's what God wanted because that's where they're at. So that's where we'll leave them. And then we feel disempowered based on that. And I don't think that was probably the initial meaning of karma. This has just been what's adopted because it's painful to look at and we want to make, make sense of the pain, but it anchors it in. Right. And and I also don't think that it's very different here in the U.S. For example, a, a lot of people in India are Nepal have no idea how large that this industry has become. Mm. And we're dealing with the same thing in the U.S. Oftentimes we'll talk about this. Like, oh, that's something that's happening in Africa or India or Thailand. And it's happening in our own backyard. Again, 10,000 in Utah alone yeah. a year per mm-hmm. year. Yeah, around 300,000 in the U.S. a year. You know, it's interesting because there's, I remember not being able to, and I want to talk about the the stories and the beliefs around these things. Um, I remember that you don't ever give money to the children that are mutilated. I remember this very clearly. And I remember being told also that you must give money to, there's a, there's a uh, people in there, they refer to them as hydras or hydras, uh, which they're born both male and female, which is, I guess, common in general uh not common it's rare uh but in india i think maybe it's more common or maybe they you know groups of hedras come together and they will ask for money and it's a blessing to give it to them and if you don't they will curse you and they they, the indians really really believe this and maybe that's maybe it actually is real that that could happen and uh or maybe uh i mean the human mind works in very unusual ways that if you believe it, it does happen. And I thought that I found that, I don't know, surprising really to see just that dynamic happening. Right. Well, you know, oftentimes if, if money is given, it's kind of like supply and demand. Mm -hmm. So there might not be a lot of mutilated children around, so they will actually mutilate the children to mm. bring money in. And the mm. same thing with human trafficking. The more supply, or excuse me, the more demand, the supply is going to raise up. So, um, Another fascinating thing about India when I was there, and I'm not at all bashing India. I don't think this is a problem with a lack of morals of Indians or India or their religions, or anything like that. I think India is uh, some of the most wonderfully hearted people I've met in India. And uh, I feel like what happened to India is that they brought on a lot of technologies, kind of forced to, for due to like economic survival. And uh, I mean, plastic was introduced. Indians used to use, you know, banana leaves or whatever was natural. You could throw it on the ground because there's so many people in such a condensed place. And it would just become compost. And now plastic's been introduced. Uh, call centers have been introduced. And um, yeah, I'm trying to articulate this well. Even the middle class people, the people that make upper middle class, $1,000 US a month, people with ma- uh, master's degrees, live in conditions worse than some projects in the United States. However, there's an elite group of people in India, I'm not blaming them either, um, that I remember going to, most of the time I was not, I was only ever once around this group and it was by accident I met a girl 
at a restaurant who invited me to some party while I was down there. It was the only party I went to the whole time I was in India for seven months. And I went into this sky rise and I was like, who the heck's house is this? Because it was nothing like anything else I'd seen in India. And, uh, and she goes, oh, it's this guy. I'm like, where is he? Oh, he's not even here. And I'm like, well, where is he? Oh, he's in his one of the other houses. I'm like, how many houses does he have? And she goes, I don't know, like seven or eight, I think. And he was a politician. And I go out on the balcony and I look down and it's all shanty towns below. And I saw a lot of these, a lot of these images. And growing up in the Bay Area, right outside of Oakland, um, I would see these gigantic houses, but yet where I lived, it was all projects. So to see these things, I mean, there it was even more extreme. Um, yeah. How do people explain that? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange phenomenon. It's uh, looking at a high rise and a slum right next to it. It's somehow the ecosystem's working there. <laughs> it's just turning itself out. I don't know the answer to that. Have you ever seen the movie Snowpiercer? I haven't. Very violent movie. I probably wouldn't watch it again just because of how violent it was. But it told a very powerful story of kind of what we're dealing with right now. It did a really good job at that. Um, but it's very violent. One of the most violent movies I've seen. And it shows like a cast system moving through a train. Um, and this train is just like going around in circles. I often question, what is it that we can do to help all of the resources move from those that are hoarding it to those that are in desperate need? What is it that we could do to transmit a beautiful world to the ones that are holding the wealth, terrified to let go of it, to where their heart opens and they loosen their grip and let some of it spill over to those that are so in need? How is it that we can show to these people that have a lot that those that don't are their own kin? And I, I ask that question a lot, and all I know to do is kind of what I'm doing now. And uh, I think this is one of the first times in my life I've been able to hold that. For a long time, I would hear about how bad things are, and I'd want to pick another topic to like really stand behind. And, and I think that was also good. It was part of the process. And I'm not by any means holding on to all the topics right now. It's too much to bear, you know, everything that's happening. What do you tell yourself when you're here in Utah knowing that this is all happening? Well, you know, one of the largest problems I see with all of this is actually education around sexuality, our own expression of our own sexuality, how we move our sexuality, what we know about it. Um, when you talk about Because that's where the customers come from. This is, yeah, the, the, the main areas that we see human trafficking happen are generally the most conservative areas. We're talking about Utah here, 10,000 in Utah. Mm. You're talking about an extremely conservative country um, as far as morals go or what they perceive as morals in India. India and, mm -hmm. and uh, Nepal also. Right. So um, I, I work a lot around sexual education, um, learning quite a bit about our own sexuality and how to move our sexuality in positive ways and empowering ways and ways that actually are edifying versus keeping the sexuality in the shadows. And when we keep our sexuality in the shadows, these are the type of things that pop up is um, acting it out, hiding behind doors, doing it in ways that are, are not helping out our society. Do you think that homosexuality being decriminalized and social media and having some influence in India will maybe help? I mean, it seems like it's still growing. Yeah, I mean, is maybe this is there? Uh, uh, one of the things with economics is that. GDP could only rise as long as more and more 
areas that were normally not commoditized, that didn't get turned into money, get turned into money. For example, when women went to work and it wasn't just the men working, which for a long time it was just men working, then it was some women, then it was, you know, almost all. Um, and then, of course, there's the wage gaps and all of that that I don't want to go that direction on this on this podcast. But And then all of a sudden we commoditized music, right? It used to be people would just play music around a campfire or whatever, and then people buy CDs and records, and now, now you know, that's commoditized. And it makes sense then that we're running out of things to turn into money, and we're turning children into money. And, uh, you know, our cars are rented out. Our piece of, parts of our house are rented out to be able to help meet the mortgage. Instead of, like, getting a mortgage, I'm like, how in the hell are housing prices just going up so high? Like, or is it, incomes are not, you know? And then I'm like, well, they're probably renting out one of the rooms on Airbnb, and they're lift driving on the weekends, you know? So it's like, now I have my job. I'm also a cab driver. I'm also a hotel bed and breakfast manager. You know, I, 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 I fear a time where it's like, you know, I'm going to prostitute, you know, five hours a week. I mean, nothing against people that work in that profession. You know, there's, I think, some beauty and some healing that could happen through that if it's done with sacred sacredness and intention. But like people being forced to do that, which being forced economically to do it is the same as being forced to do it. It's having a gun to your head. These people, oftentimes, it's not a gun. It's an empty fork to their mouth that they have held to them. Yeah, it's been a heavy podcast. Yeah. Sappy subject. Yeah. There's just times where my mind just goes complete. I, my, my body feels really, really intense, and then my whole mind just goes completely blank, and I'm just, like, looking at you. And then I glance over, and I look at Daniel. Hmm. Are you feeling the heaviness of this, too? He's nodding his head, yeah. Whew. Yeah. I even feel like they're craving to like drink alcohol or like make this feeling go away, you know? I want to touch, maybe end the podcast with um, some things that we could do about this. Yeah. I think um, education and awareness is our number one tool because that's our number one preventative program around, around human trafficking. And um, how do people bring this up? I mean, it's not exactly casual conversation, you know. Well, I think um, what reading about it, um, watching films like I'm going to plug my documentary here because yeah. we really go over a lot of um, ins and outs of how human trafficking works, why it's happening. Some of the reasons why, because there's n- there's not a single reason why human trafficking is happening. There's many. It's yeah. it's woven into a web of what our story is about who we are, our place in the world, how we exchange, how resources move from one person to another, which is our money and our economic story. These are all stories. They are not facts. They could change. And they've been, things have been changing. So they can change. They can. And and I I don't Mm. know if anyone has the answer. I think this is where we come together and we do our piece of whatever that answer is. And that might be watching Stolen Innocence, which is, which is Chris's, movie that he helped direct and produce um also educating you know yourself and on what it means to be a sexual being in the world and how to be with that and uh how to be with those impulses and how to express those impulses in a safe way for yourself and others and how to like be able to live confidently in the world with those impulses Um, i just recently watched a documentary uh, of Jeffrey Dahmer, actually, in kind of preparation of this. And uh, he, because he was considered a monster in many ways, and he was raised in a very Christian family where he could never admit that he was homosexual. And he held that, and then he kept holding it in. And he said eventually, like, his fantasies just became so extreme that he couldn't even find videos to represent it because it was all secretive. And then so he started acting it out. And then when he would act it out, essentially, it, what he would act out was so brutal and horrible, he'd have to like kill the person afterwards to keep from getting into some crazy place. And that could have, you know, he could have just potentially lived. I want to believe that we live in a world where he could have lived a life where 
he had a healthy sexual relationship and worked through this and was able to communicate what the hell was going on in his head with other people. I feel like a lot of people could have learned from from him and his experience of what was coming through, or maybe there wouldn't have even been the madness. Um, this is an ultimate question, you know, or are our souls innately evil or, uh, or do our souls express evil? Is it like epigenetics? Is there the possibility that he could have been a Jeffrey Dahmer like he was, or could he have been, you know, someone else like Harvey Milk, you know, like, I mean, he was clearly driven. Um, and, uh, how does this, you know, how do we as a society not ostracize these people? How do we, how are we able to hear them? And, uh, I don't want to talk about it on this podcast, but you and I had spoken about pedophilia and kind of how that is, also brushed under and then it perpetuates because I mean nobody there's very few people that know more about pedophilia than you working rescuing children from sex slavery but I think that'll be on the next podcast um, because that's a I really want to think that one out and sit with that one and see what wants to be brought up I feel like this is a standalone yeah I have some uh, some pretty strong feelings around that and opening up our society to not judge our brothers and sisters here on where we're at and what's going on through our mind and being able to accept and work through in, in positive light ways. And, mm-hmm. and as far as other ways too, as uh, what you can help is I started up the Human Rescue Project, which is a nonprofit which um, we rescue women and girls that have been trafficked. Started that up about a year after I finished making the film because I just felt like I had to do something. And there are a lot of organizations out there. So look them up or reach the you know reach out um however we found that it only costs us around on an average of 360 dollars on average to rescue one girl it's mm. not very much money no and so you were talking about before yeah a lot of people say how can we help and a lot of people like want to go down and teach teach them or do things and money. that's not what they need yeah, yeah. we money helps us yeah. rescue these women and um, there's and in the future plans we have um, we're currently working with a lot of rehabil- rehabilitation centers to get them back in life, educate them, give them vocational training. Um, and if you know somebody that has the capital and a big heart and would like to help out, maybe sharing this podcast with you may not be the person that has the three hundred and sixty dollars to free one girl. You may only have five dollars, one dollar, twenty dollars, a hundred dollars. Um, or you may know somebody that does, that would like to hear this podcast, would like to know that they really made a big difference with where the money went. I mean, this doesn't go through some gigantic organization. This goes to people that Krish knows personally that are freeing women in Nepal and India and other places as well. Including myself. Including, yeah. including it also helps Chris be able to do this. Yeah, I, I, I go down to um, India quite often. I'm, I'm hope, hoping to do it full time, but um, I go down there and do the rescues myself and show everybody where the, where their money's going and show them the rescues and um there's a lot of organizations out there that do are doing the same and there's a lot of rehabilitations new light in India if you're looking to assist with a rehabilitation um it's ran by a woman named Ermi Basu she's just absolutely amazing does such a good job with these girls and boys she works with girls and boys 25% of those trafficked are boys right correct mm-hmm. How would somebody donate to you? Like, do you have a Venmo or a PayPal or some website that they could go to to easily donate? Because sometimes the only reason people don't do it is it's not easy enough. You know, you got to go through, log in, create a username, and, you know, verify it via text. It's just like, oh, the hell with it. I wanted to donate, but the barrier is not even the money. It's this crazy process of moving the money to get it to even to get to this place. Correct. Yeah, we have a very simple donation process through our website, thehumanrescueproject.com. And it's just spelled the humanrescueproject.com or they could go to Google and just type in the human rescue project and it will take them there. Yeah, it should. Great. And and there's, it's very easy. You can, a lot of people, what they're doing is uh, subscription models where it's like $30 a month, like the price of a a video streaming service and they're able to sponsor a rescue each year. One rescue a year, 30 bucks a month. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, something pretty awesome to feel about. I believe that when you do things and you put your money to things like this, the creator, God, spirit the spirit of the gift if you want to call it that like will help move that money back into your you'll have enough or maybe it's not direct money it's somebody helping you out that saves you more than that 360 bucks over the year 
fixing your alternator or something that normally wouldn't have happened. It's totally disconnected. You can't even link the two. And I think that's the beautiful power of faith. And it's sad a lot of times faith gets abused. Like, you know, you have to have faith in this, you know, because that's what we say to have faith in. But uh, this isn't something that you, you don't, don't take my word for having faith in this or having faith in humanity or faith in helping rescue sex slaves. Feel into your heart. Feel how you feel about that. And also feel into your heart if you feel like that there is something called the spirit of the gift. I never believed it. Um, I didn't believe it until last couple years, really. And somebody gave me a gift and, uh, and then it allowed me to be giving more afterwards. And I've had unimaginably remarkable stories of how the spirit of gift moves on. Essentially, that's maybe the bulk of our sickness is the fact that there is a gift that's trying to move and people are holding the gift and taking way more than they need to and it's getting stuck. And it's not that they should have less and be like destitute or everybody should be in poverty. It's just that we should all be living in abundance. How can we feel good? How can you be in that tower looking down at the slums and feel good about yourself? There's a deep numbness that comes to the soul when you're doing that. There, you're, you're, you're experiencing those slums too in a different way. It's in your nightmares. It's in your craving for alcohol. It's in your craving for you know, other addictions that are tormenting you. The demons are there. So uh, free yourself of the hoarded gift and let it move to the places of deepest, deepest need. And I encourage you to, uh, this is a, a project that I stand behind. And if you know an artist, any musicians, uh, Krish and I have talked about uh, holding a fundraiser here in Utah. Uh, we run Ecstatic Dance Salt Lake City, me and my partner Madeline. And we wanted to do a fundraiser uh, uh, for, for, the, for the group, for the nonprofit. And if you know any big musical artists that would like to play, donate their time. We could pay for travel and all that. But uh, or if they'd like to do that, if they're coming through Salt Lake or if they want to come down and do a show, we have a big following. A lot of people will show up and uh, we'll take all of the money and put it towards freeing and rescuing women. Anything else you want to touch on, Chris? I think that's it. All right, beautiful. Thank you all. And uh, if you want to learn more about the gift, which is essentially what we're talking about, the gift moving to where it's needed most, uh, next month I'm going to be interviewing uh, Robin, who whose uh, film just went live uh, this last weekend in the Bay Area, was released called Gift. And it's based on Lewis Hyde's work on the spirit of the gift and how communities and cultures didn't operate through barter or through money systems. They operated exclusively through the gift with their community. And uh, it's going to be a beautiful podcast. And I look forward to having Chris back on here when we could go into some other topics that we just barely touched on. Final notes on this podcast. Um, Chris, you had mentioned that there's a, we get so deep into this that we forgot to mention that the release of the film is this Thanksgiving. Can you tell us where we can find this film? I've actually been away from the mic for a minute and like my, I feel way more animated because this is heavy to sit with. It's alchemizing inside of me. Where's the film... Uh, going to be shown we're actually going to release it free to the public um for everybody to watch on stolendocumentary.com and wow it's, it's free it's that's the free. gift right mm -hmm. so he's gifting this work to everybody uh to bring awareness to help these to help these women and these children both male and female and please there's other ways to contribute other than just money um nowadays uh what sharing is also very very helpful uh, if you share this documentary or share this podcast with people, that makes it brings awareness, which is really ultimately what the money is trying to do anyway, is bring awareness. Because uh, you could bring awareness to the other people that have money. They could then pay these people to do this. But if you don't have money, you could do spreading the awareness. Uh, you could also review our podcast, which then puts us higher up in the what gets shown on Apple. Um, we don't take any – at this current time, I'm blessed with – a successful business and i don't use this podcast for anything except for to spread awareness about very beautiful things and we don't ask for donations for ourselves so we oftentimes will ask for donations for our guests that are on the show so don't donate to us uh, donate to this but please review us and share this podcast with people is there anything else any other way that people can find you and your work um, yeah, I think uh, StolenDocumentary.com, TheHumanRescueProject.com, uh, both of these areas you can find me and find a lot of what I do. Um, what about your workshops with uh, looking at our own uh, sexual, I, I don't know what word I'm looking for here. Yeah. You, could you know what I mean. 
yeah, working uh, around human sexuality and go. our and our empowerment. See, I feel it. uncomfortable even talking about it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. well, what about our se- that sex thing that I do in the behind closed doors in the dark? You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm actually currently redoing my website right now and uh, putting together deeper and further programs around that, and um, both for men and women and um, couples and everybody to dive deeper into our own sexuality and make it. Uh, make it a lot uh, deeper and more meaningful for this world because it's a powerful force. Just as all we're looking at all this darkness and shadows around sexuality can be just, just as powerful on the, on the, on the other side of it. So, um, I'll, I'll, I'll get that website up soon. It will be uh, krishdavis.com. Is that spelled? How is that spelled? K-R-I-S-H-D-A-V-I-S. I got the name Krish in India. It's after Krishna. Everybody just called me Krishna in India, so I just went with it. Beautiful. Now you <laughs> dance at the Krishna temple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.